listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Are you transitioning out of the military? Have you considered life insurance? Transitioning out of the military can be hectic. Don't forget to shop for your life insurance needs. The SGLI doesn't last forever. Many veterans get confused by their options after service. Insure the Heroes is the go-to term life insurance brokerage for military families past and present. Owned and operated by Coast Guard spouse Melissa Skier, Insure the Heroes offers affordable, quality life insurance plans. Melissa has 16 years of experience in the insurance industry and is dedicated to helping you protect your loved ones if you die. Remember, life insurance isn't for you, it's for the ones you leave behind. One out of five households admit they don't have enough life insurance. Check out what Melissa has to offer with a no obligation quote by heading over to her website at insuretheheroes.com or if you prefer, you can call her directly at 844-514-LIFE. Tiffany served in the Army for 10 and a half years. While she was in, she deployed to Iraq twice. I'm excited to hear more about your military experience today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start the interview with why did you decide to join the military? Well, I decided to join because honestly, I had no idea what I wanted to do after school. I knew that I wanted to get away from the small town that I was in, but I did not want to go to any of the schools that were local to us. And I did not want to have my parents accumulate a lot of debt to send me to school when I was so uncertain about what future I wanted to, or what career I wanted to get into. And I was, you know, an honor student in high school. I didn't get scholarships until after, or scholarship opportunities until after I found out that I was going to actually go in the military. It was a little too late, but I just knew that I wanted to try something different, something challenging, but I wanted to, I wanted to have time to find myself and figure out where I wanted to be. So you you had already enlisted when the scholarship opportunities, or not delayed, delayed enlisted, or you had made your commitment to the military, and then the scholarship opportunities came? Yes, and I'll never forget the day I received it in the mail. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to back out. I was like, no, I don't want to go anymore. And school, the one school I did apply to sent me a scholarship opportunity. So uh, they sent me scholarship information in the mail, and I was like, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. But my parents were like, no, you already said you were going to do it. Keep your word and do it. So they made you stick it, stick to it. They did. But they did not make me stay in as long as I ended up staying in. The first enlistment was motivated by the conversations with them. But the remaining time in was all on me. I was just interested in the possibility of not only leaving where I was from, the small town, but seeing the world and meeting people and trying things that I'd never tried before. And I just, I knew that the area that I was interested in, which was like English and literature and writing, it wasn't an easy career field to get into. Even I spoke that many years ago, even now I'd imagine it's a lot harder, but I knew that I would not probably have the, the success I was looking for right away. And I wasn't certain that college would help me in that area because it was more of a passion, not necessarily something I wanted to spend four years studying. 
So now, you know, obviously I had something to write about. <laughs> At that time, 17, 19 years old, I mean, very limited of t- amount of topics that I could pull from and, you know, actually convince somebody that they should hire me to be a writer. And so, yeah, that's that's how I ended up joining the Army, just not knowing where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do, and not wanting to have to spend a lot of money to figure out what I wanted to do. That makes sense. So what was your job when you were in the military? I was a 92 Alpha in the Army, which is an automated logistics specialist. And so I was a part of the Quartermaster Corps, which is by far the best uh, corps in the U.S. Army, the best MOS in the U.S. Army. And I still brag about the amount of people that I met networking and just, we have to be like the jack of all trades, the master of none, and uh, just kind of know almost everything about logistics in the military. So it was pretty cool. I liked it. And what was your first assignment after boot camp? My first duty station was at Fort Stewart, Georgia, which is the home of the 3rd Infantry Division, Rock of the Mars. And I was in a chemical company. So now you take a logistics person or a logistician and throw them in a chemical company. I had no idea what to expect. Surely I learned, but I had no idea what to expect, what to anticipate being in a chemical company. But I ordered as odd as this is, you kind of got to drill down to it. So I ended up in a chemical unit and I ended up working with mechanics in a chemical company. So I worked in what they call the motor pool and I ordered parts for their vehicles to make sure that their equipment, everything from vehicles to weapons to chemical equipment, I made sure that stuff was serviceable and that it worked. And when it didn't work, I made sure that we got replacements. And when did you end up deploying to Iraq? My first deployment to Iraq was in 2003, January 2003. Actually, well, we went to Kuwait first, and then in March, of course, we rolled into Iraq. That was my first deployment, and I think I was 19 years old. So still very ripe, as I was saying. What what does a 19-year-old have to really write about? But I found out rather quickly after that point. So, yeah, that was my first deployment, 2003, what we call the initial ground invasion into Iraq. And it was quite an experience. What do you remember from the initial invasion of going into Iraq? Oh, goodness. So, if I can elaborate some. We spent quite a bit of time in Kuwait. And I remember not being certain about why we were there. I knew it was a bunch of soldiers there. I knew it was a bunch of tents. I knew there were camps all across Kuwait. But I feel like I had never gotten that talk that, hey, we're going to war. And I remember somebody telling me at the time, my last name was Davis. I wasn't married. And i never forget, uh, NCO told me, well, Davis, you don't think we're actually here to scare them. We're actually here to go to war. And I was like, no, no, we would have known we were going to war by this point. But, um... I'll never forget when we actually got told that we were leaving. We were at Camp New Jersey at that time in Kuwait, and we were told we were leaving, going to an assembly area, and we stayed there for a few weeks or whatever. But I remember when we went to the forward assembly area, and it was nighttime, and all you could see was vehicles for miles and miles and just tan vehicles. And we were kind of hanging outside of our trucks and, you know, just kind of shooting the breeze. And we saw like some 
at the time, I didn't know what it was. Again, 19, never seen anything like this. It seemed like fireworks in the sky. But I was actually told that there were like scud missiles or something and things being shot down from Kuwait or whatever it was. It was at that moment that I realized that, oh, yeah, we're we're actually about to go into war. We're actually about to go into a combat zone. And I'm sitting on the edge of that now. Um, and I think I sat in a vehicle and cried because I had no idea what to expect. And we had been kind of like sitting in limbo for so many weeks, about two months or so, just in the camps and just working and doing our normal jobs, not really knowing what to expect. So in my mind, I remember thinking, there's a good chance I'm never going to go home. There's a good chance that I'm not going to come home in one piece. There's a good chance that I don't, I, I'm not going to go home for another year on top of the months that I've already been here because at that time the war itself hadn't started. I remember being very terrified, but I never showed it. I wasn't like screaming, running around, you know, not the way you would think a terrified person would react, but internally I was panicking because again, I was just in high school not too long ago. And here now, I'm miles and miles away from home. I'm in the desert. I'm working with people who are scared and not sure what to expect, just like I am. And honestly, looking at each other, some of us might not come home. And so at 19 years old, that was a lot to process. That was a lot to take in on top of being vigilant and being alert and remembering convoy operations and remembering how to uh, carry your weapon and all types of things going through my mind at 19 at the time. I was still a private, but nobody could have prepared me for that. And we can train, but you can't really prepare for when you're boots on the ground and you're actually approaching the thing that you've been training for. You can't prepare for the amount of emotions that you're going to feel. I remember during training, like, walking into a room and being, like, overwhelmed by the fact that out of those, like, 150 people, there was no way that all of us would be alive at the end of a year, which is, like, the craziest, weirdest feeling because you... You don't ever really have that opportunity, not that it's a good opportunity, but you never have that experience, I guess is a better way of saying it, of like walking into the room and knowing that we're going to war and there's, we're not all going to come home, right. you know, the odds of us all coming home is not good and the odds of people not getting injured, it's not good and it's just a weird place to be where you're with all these people and you know you're about to go on this mission and nobody knows who's coming home right. and who's not Right. And I think sometimes you have a false sense of security because you're like, well, I'm not combat armed. I'm not infantry and we're way in the back. But it's not like that because the threat is all around you. And these are things that you kind of have to come to that understanding on your own. Nobody can tap you on the shoulder and be like, hey, there's a threat. Everywhere's a threat. You kind of start realizing that I'm not safe. I can't rest. I can't relax. I have to be uh, alert at all times because this is not home. This is a very hostile environment. And so that goes along with accepting the fact that somebody's not going to make it out of here. And I remember before we went into Iraq in, in talking about uh, some of my most memorable moments is mostly the, the road into Iraq, the moments that led up to that. I remember we were all in the diner facility in Kuwait, and this was before we got, you know, told that we were leaving the camp and going to an assembly area. This was before President Bush gave his warning or whatever. Um, so we were all crammed into a dining facility, and we had like a, a two-star came down and talked to us about 
prepping ourselves mentally for what could happen and what would happen. And I remember him saying, making a, a comment about what if it's his pilot's day and not his day. Basically, he was talking about dying or becoming a casualty. And at 19, again, these are conversations I never had to have in my life. Like learning how to drive. It was like, wear your seatbelt, be careful, don't be distracted with your friends in the car. But here I am now talking about what if it's my, the pilot's day to die and I don't want to be in this or, you know, you got to be prepared for the worst possible scenario. So leading into Iraq, it was a lot of that in the back of my mind. And even once we crossed into the, we crossed the burn and we rolled into Iraq, I remember feeling like, kind of had this idea, like as soon as you get in there, they're going to be shooting at you. That's not what it was. It was driving for hours and hours and there was a lot of dust in my face and there was a lot of dust on our bodies and in our eyes and my ears and smell of dust. Those are things that I remember mostly was how I wasn't myself. I couldn't get clean enough. I couldn't get enough rest. I couldn't cool off enough because it's just so hot everywhere. But I remember us driving for, we just drove forever, basically. Every day we'd wake up driving and we'd end the night driving and you slept in your vehicle because you were about to start driving in an hour. So everything was about refueling and pushing north. But I remember the people that I would see. And like we would be walking without in the road or you would see like uh, farmers with, with sheep and you see other vehicles. And I remember being so happy when you see other convoys, even if they were nowhere near us. But I always felt that safety in numbers thing that is more of us or so not so much more soldiers or more Americans, but more people like me that are here. We really don't want to be here, but we we're pushing forward anyway. I was always happy to just kind of have that silent acknowledgement that we're all in this together. So so many dynamics to it that it's not just we're here to fight and we're here to take over and we're here to create a democracy and we're going to do. I'm here. I'm following orders first and foremost. I'm serving my country. I'm here. But yes, I have a life outside of all of this. I have hopes and aspirations outside of this uniform. I want all of us to come back safe. And I kept all of that with me, even at such a young age compared to my age now, I kept all of that with me, the humanity in what I was doing. And like I was telling you earlier, the idea of, of war and the concept of deployments and stuff is not as glamorous as it's made out on TV. You don't talk like that all the time. It's not a combat combat zone environment all the time where, you know, grenades and uh, gunfire and stuff. A lot of times it's just connections with other people, camaraderie. And basically, the idea that we have an army to not let your battle buddy dangle in the dirt, but grabbing them by the hand and pulling them along with you. Because there were days where we were tired. There were days where we were hungry. There were days where we were just beat down. And if it wasn't for knowing that there were other people there with me who were supposed to have been out of the army by then, or they were ready to go home and see their children, things like that, and we didn't have those connections and opportunities to just kind of like talk to each other. I think I would have, I, I wouldn't, I would not have been whole while I was there. Yeah, the people definitely are the important part to get you through. And I liked when you talked, like, it's not always combat. There's a lot of downtime where you're not really even doing anything. Right. You're, hurry up and wait. The military is very good at that. You hurry up and wait. Yeah, so, specialize yeah. in that. 
They teach you that. We start our training with hurry up and wait. You got to learn that part first. Yeah. They teach you that when you're in training, just so you know, when you're overseas, you're going to have to do it too. Right. So you went at the very beginning of Iraq war and then you went like at the end of the war, right? I went back um, about a year and a half later. Okay. Ironically, to the exact same places, I would say. It's just the, the next time I went, we were more stabilized. We were actually, there were there were camps now in Iraq, and it was built up, and you actually had a place that you could shower and sleep, and there were places to go to commissary and parks and phone center and the internet cafe. We didn't have any of that in 2003. It was just your vehicle. So all you had was your vehicle and your uniform. But yeah, in 2005, I went back, and I was there for 12 months. It was totally different then. What was the biggest difference? I mean, besides that you could shower and you had a place to put your stuff instead of just being constantly moving and in your vehicle. Honestly, and I'm probably going to date myself here. When I went in 2003, when we crossed into Iraq in 2003, I was worried about landmines because that's kind of how our training was. In basic training, we talked about the Claymore mines and it was that. Look at the trip wires and things like that. Something sticking up through the dirt that might look like a, a landmine. In 2005, it was not that. We re- we learned our enemy by then, and they weren't using landmines. So the training was old. We were they were using uh, VBIDs at that time, or IEDs and then VBIDs at that time. So in 2005, we already been home for. A little over a year, probably, from the time we returned in 03. Oh, yeah, 03. And we had seen the next division come in. I think they found Saddam Hussein in a hole somewhere. But leading up to all of that, we saw what they were really dealing, dealing with. They were actually dealing with urban warfare. And so the people running up to the vehicles in the cities or the town and the uh, suicide bombers or the convoys rolling down the highways and then suddenly a pile of tires on the road blows up and the convoys get ambushed and stuff. So we had a year to process that this is what it's turned into since we left. Like, this wasn't happening really when we were there. I mean, not much. So when I went in 2005, I remember probably the night we were in Kuwait, the night before we went into Iraq, I remember going into the latrine and crying because I was like, I I cannot believe I'm back here. And it's far worse than it was with COVID-19. Like, this is this is worse. Even though it's more built up and we had more luxuries for uh, a deployment, the threat was worse. The threat was amplified. I was terrified to roll over a water bottle or what looked like, looks like regular debris in the road. I was terrified of it. And I knew we still had maybe about a four-day drive so to get to uh, where we were going to be stationed at in Iraq. So that was the probably the biggest thing for me was knowing that the the threat from 2003 is not the threat that I'm about to encounter now. So most of our time during that deployment was spent being aware of the roadways and if we had to convoy somewhere. So I was a logistician, so I dealt with a lot of parts, going to get parts from different uh, supply points. I would have to leave where I was a lot to go take things, to go pick up things. And there were times that we would go to the logistics sites, the logistic points to pick up supplies, and they there would be, I'm going to use my lose my terminology here, but they the camps would get hit. 
and we would go run into the bunkers and we'd sit there for hours. I'm like, all I needed to go do was pick up some batteries for a Humvee. And it's three hours later, we're still sitting here. But that place, obviously, it was a supply point, so they got hit a lot. And I didn't deal with that on the first deployment. Second deployment, the camps got hit a lot. Our commissary got hit. And the vehicles would come back damaged. I mean, you have to see all of that, especially because I worked with vehicles. I worked with other people who worked on vehicles and not just in my company or in my battalion, but just you network with other people like you who do what you do. And they'll say, tell you things like, yeah, this vehicle's no good. We don't have it anymore. It got blown up or it got destroyed. You know, that became commonplace. So knowing that our vehicles were more... It would be it would be damaged just by a, doing a regular parts run. And I also remember the frustration with soldiers because we didn't have the armor that we needed, not just for our persons, but for our vehicles. So when I went in 2003, we had regular soft shells on our Humvees, on our vehicles. When I went in 2005, we had some sheet metal that was very uh, flimsy. It too became like shrapnel if the vehicle got hit. And I remember eventually some of the vehicles got what they call up armored. So they got upgraded to a more quality, heftier type of armor for the vehicles. But that kind of plays into that we didn't know what we were dealing with thing, not just on a company level, but a, a defense level altogether. They were, I would say, necessarily prepared for what to expect in terms of threats and responding to those threats. So I watched the whole process of having no armor on our vehicles, barely any on our persons, to the transition of having better armor, more armor, and still having to deal with is not enough. Because obviously they got smarter and they use more explosives and whatnot. So it was definitely something we learned on the fly. And thankfully we have the type of military leaders that react and respond appropriately but a lot of people obviously you know were lost because we didn't have those basic things yeah the evolution of going from a humvee to like a humvee with armor and then eventually with the mraps was really kind of crazy the more that i've learned about it about how like soldiers would put sandbags at the bottom of their trucks because they didn't have any and i was just blown away because when i went in 2010 we had mraps and i don't think i realized how lucky i was to have an mrap because i never like i had trained in humvees so i knew how crappy they were but i didn't realize like how new they were in 2010 and like how it how much it had changed right. the way the war was being fought. And a, a person would look at you like you're crazy if you tell them you're going into Iraq with this Humvee. Like if you had a side-by-side comparison of that and the MRAP, you'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. You're crazy. It's a joke, right? There's no way we're going in. But everybody went into Iraq without that stuff. I mean, there's a very few that might have already had it, like MPs and stuff. But for the most part, we didn't have that. We were bare bones going in there. And lack of a better word, ignorant. They did not know. And you can't prepare for it if you don't know it. So I remember, now you're talking about it, when we had to take the windows out of our truck, 
I'm going to take the truck doors apart, take the windows out. I'm like, what are we going to do with all this glass? And we actually slid like plates of a sheet down in the chute where the windows, the windows were. And it was just cut out like the shape of a silhouette. <laughs> so if you're sitting back against your seat, looking at the side of your truck, you should not be seen because we got this metal sheet right here. And uh, that's what we had. And it was clinking around in the trucks when you were driving things. And it was just so, I wish, I don't know, maybe we find pictures of it. But people probably wouldn't believe that that's what we used for armor at that time. It seems so ancient now that I'm saying it. <laughs> it's crazy how much it changed. Yes. Because, like you said, if you look at a Humvee and you put an MRAP or an MATV next to them and, like, put them all in a line, it's like a huge jump. Like, they're, like, the amount of armor and, because... We trained in Humvees, and I didn't. I didn't even realize at the time that like people trained in them and used them mm-hmm. at the beginning of the war. Because yep. I was like, oh, we trained in this, and then we go to and we're in an MRAP. Oh, so yeah. yeah, it's it's crazy because I I think people don't understand. And an MRAP, if you don't know what it is, it's an upper armored vehicle. There's a really long acronym that goes with it, but it's confusing. But someone asked me if it was a blanket. I was like, yeah, it's a blanket of protection. So that's what it is. Like a luxury war vehicle, if you will, compared to what we went in there with. So... And yeah, so those were, I mean, we had the zipper windows. You had to unzip the windows. And and, uh, that was my, my, I worked in that and I slept in that and I ate in there. It was a kitchen. It was a therapy room. That's where we talked and laughed and we sang songs in there. And (laughs) we lived in those things. And it was not the safest thing to be in, but, you know, we did what we could do, did what we had to do, rather. So let's switch over and let's talk about what your experience was like in the military in general. Were there any struggles that you went through while you were in the military? And if you want to go back to the deployment, that's fine. But So after basic training, and once I got to what they call permanent party, my first duty assignment, I just could not get used to it. I could not get used to where I slept, the barracks we were in. At the time when I was there, our barracks were being um, renovated, so they put us in old family housing, and it was Hallwood Homes, I think is what it was called. And it was pretty much, it was like a townhouse, but soldiers were living in these townhouses. It was inadequate. It was very uncomfortable. And then when I got there, you know, in basic training and your advanced individual training, you're with so many of your peers. A lot of you might be the same age. You've been with each other for weeks and you learned the job together. And so with my job, because they can put us in so many different areas, I was prepared to be in an area where there would be a bunch of 92 alphas, such as myself. And when I got there, I like I said, I ended up working with mechanics. And I was one of maybe two 92 alphas in a platoon that was full of uh, mechanics that were in a chemical company. So drilled down to the lowest level, it was I was in a very small group in a company of people who I had no uh, connection to. And I just could not get used to it. They didn't know me. I didn't really talk to too many people. And not only was I now a 92 alpha, like a foreign uh, group with a foreign group of people who don't have the same MOS as me, I was now in a platoon that was predominantly male. And it was probably about five females out of 30 in total. And I just did not, I could not get with it. I couldn't. I had a hard time adjusting to it. I had a hard time. um, I didn't sleep well, which means I overslept a lot. Which means I got in trouble a lot. And I felt like we went to the field a lot. And 
I'm already uncomfortable. I'm out of my comfort zone. I don't know anybody. I'm learning my job still. And we stayed in the field. And I was, I remember not doing well on my PT test a lot. And I think I finally had a talk with somebody. I went to um, Fort Irwin, California for NTC. And they got me out here in the Dust Bowl for like 45 days. And I remember a sergeant chewing me out because something happened with the part he needed. And it was my job, yes, but I'm still learning my job. The people who were the more skilled and expertise for our job, they were in trouble. I put it that way. So they didn't let me talk to the person to learn my job that well. And I remember getting chewed out one morning and I, I remember being at NTC. So now I'm not even near my duty station. We're here for 45 days. And I remember just being broken. I was sad. I was sad and I was scared and I was cold and I was dusty. And a lieutenant came to talk to me and he, I don't even remember what he said, but I remember his name. And he told me, you know, basically, this is the Army. You know, it's hard. But basically telling me, you know, with tact, you can learn how to defend yourself, how to stand up for yourself so that you don't feel like you're being picked on all the time. Because I was, I was the slowest runner. I mean, I ran with predominantly males all the time. And I could not keep up with them. And he basically just kind of gave me a swift kick to the rear end. Well, I have a better way to put it. And just kind of, but he did it consolingly. He didn't like belittle me. And he just kind of gave me, had a real talk with me and told me, you're going to have to do this. You're able to do it. You're going to have to figure it out. And don't let these people scare you away. And I don't know what happened, but a, a, it's like a little spark in me. And I started learning my job by asking other people for help. Let me see what you do. Show me what you do. And for a newcomer in the military, it's like the best thing because people love showing folks what they do. Because we're all just kind of like in our own world. Like, I'm just here. I'm just doing this. Just leave me alone. I don't want any trouble. But when you start saying, hey, can I sit with you? Can you show me what you do? People opened up. So I was sitting with CW3s, like chief warrant officers. With, hey, we got somebody who want to learn how to do this? Hey, I got some NCOs that can show you how to do this. So I was meeting warrant officers at NTC. I was meeting E7, sergeant first classes at NTC. Here I was in E2 with mosquito wings at a table with so much experience learning how to troubleshoot vehicles, learning how to order parts the right way, learning what I can do when things don't go my way in terms of supplies or shortages or something. I mean, they were giving me so much information. And once that happened, when I came back to my duty assignment after the training, I was like a new person. My platoon sergeant told me, you seem different. And I said, well, you know, the best way to learn your job in garrison is to go to the field. If you can do this job in the field or NTC for 45 days with like no, you know, conveniences, sleeping, running water or whatever it is, you can do this back home in garrison in peacetime. And I started getting better on my PT test and I started getting promoted. But it was all because that lieutenant took me aside and told me, Snap out of it. You're here. So be here. Be all here. If they offended you, use that as motivation to do what you need to do. But you don't know your job and you're not learning your job because you're expecting people to teach you your job. Then it's going to be up to you to just go learn it. Go figure it out and go own it. And as it was like the blinders came off. And that's all I needed to hear to take off and run with it. And it it worked out for me. I mean, I made Sergeant First Class in about nine years, I think. 
and I got pretty good duty assignments and I became like a go-to person for my job. Even when I left one duty assignment, people would still email me or call me asking me for help with things at the previous duty assignment. But I kind of made a promise to myself to bring value to the table. Don't bring problems to the table. Everybody got their own problems. They don't want to hear yours too. So if I'm going to be invited to the table, I want to have an abundance to offer people, whether it's being on time, whether it's being a hard worker, whether it's being a problem solver, a leader, whatever they need, that's what I'm bringing to the table. And it all stemmed from that tough talking to when I was in NTC at Fort Irwin. That's really shows the power of how one person can really make a difference and change right. the whole course of your career because you were really struggling and you needed someone to just give you that push and that gentle correction that got you on the right path. So that's that's a really cool story and I bet that lieutenant I don't even know if he knows what he Gosh, did, I don't but think so he probably you does should it. Probably I should look tell. him up on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, I'll tell you, should. but the people who it's amazing how People can kick you while you're down or they see a soft spot and they'll keep pressing on it because whether those individuals realize it or not, they all kind of were jumping on me because I was the one to jump on. Oh, she's the soft one. She's the weak one. Let's go ahead and keep jumping on her. But once they realize, oh, I'm not weak anymore. I'm not soft anymore. Like if you bruise me, I'll bruise back tactfully, of course. And I just kind of figure out a way to stay out of trouble. Like if they're waiting for me to to fumble at this or fail at this, make sure you do this and this and this. And once those things started happening on a regular, I didn't have any problems. People were actually excited to see me at work because they knew, oh, she's cool. She's the phone. No, I'm not cool. I'm just squared away now. And I'm not, you know, the puppet anymore. So before the interview, you told me about an experience that happened. Do you want to talk about that? I can explain it in a way that's not so detailed. But there's one thing... And it goes, it kind of ties into having combat experience and not knowing what to expect. And I think the military is very good at training us to fight a certain way. But like I said earlier, there there's some things that they cannot train you on. That's how to how to respond mentally or emotionally to everything. And so after Iraq, I went after my second deployment. I was stationed overseas in a really good, really good location in Italy. And it was it, it should have been like a, a really easy assignment. It was fun because we were traveling. We were in a small hidden unit on an Air Force base. And it was beautiful. We were right alongside the mountains. And it was just, it was just beautiful. Picture perfect for as far as career duty assignments go. And I, I ordered parts for um, Blackhawks at the time. And so now I'm learning something else. So I'm not working with vehicles anymore. I'm working with aircraft and the price tag is a lot higher. And the people are a lot more specialized in aircraft maintenance. And I always found out wherever I went, I always had people who would take me under their wings because of that experience. I just started asking questions. What do you do? Oh, show me how you do this. Oh, that's pretty cool. What about this? And so if the same thing happened when I ended up in that company. I was like, hey, I want to learn. I'm here. What can I help with? What can I learn? And so I got great extra duty assignments for transportation and logistics, like transportation movement. But in those extra assignments, I was able to see things differently. And so we ordered parts for aircraft, which meant we did a lot of maintenance or they did a lot of maintenance on them and we did our own maintenance. 
to some degree, we would do our own maintenance or somebody else or different organizations would take it a higher level of maintenance, depending on what the need was. And these are all things I had to learn. I had to learn terminology, different personalities. I had to learn who was more skilled at doing what, because there's a difference between certain aviation um, repairs, like avionics is different from if they're repairing something on the outside or whatever it is. So I had to learn all this stuff. And so learning all of it gave me an appreciation for it. So when one of them crashed, you could imagine how I felt because I saw the labor that went in to keeping these things serviceable and safe. And so unfortunately, as nice as that assignment was, we did experience a, um, a loss. And I remember the responses of the people around. It wasn't a, you lost somebody or something. It was, we lost, we suffered a horrific loss. Primarily because we were, there was no threat. So I didn't have this experience in Iraq. I had this experience in a very uh, quiet, still assignment. And it was during a time where I was getting to the point where I was wondering if the military long term would be for me. Like, where do I want to go? Like, I've, I've been doing this since I was, I joined at 17, 18. Now I'm ready to figure out what am I going to do with myself? So I was at that point in my career, which I think everybody gets to that point. And they start wondering, is this going to be long term? Am I going to get out after a certain, a certain rank or whatever it is? And that's where I was in my career and in my life. I was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. And so when that happened, all I could, I, it was bad for me, not because the resources to help with grief and loss weren't there, but I was an NCO. I had soldiers, and because of my rank, I did not live in the barracks. I lived on the economy, so I had my own apartment. I was single at the time, so when you had the married soldiers, they would go home to a spouse and a family. The soldiers who lived in the barracks would go home to roommates. I went home alone. So remember when I was telling you that the unit, my first duty assignment, it was very drilled down, very specific. I was, uh, how do you say, like a, uh, the amount of people who did my job was small. And I was already in a very specific platoon in a very specific company. So I was in a chemical company working with mechanics, but I wasn't a mechanic. So here I am now I'm in Italy in an aviation unit ordering parts. So I'm already like set aside. I'm not avionics, so I'm not an aviation person. And I'm single and I live alone. And so I found myself being lonely when I was grieving. Not only that, I didn't have friends or roommates to kind of hang out with to keep me distracted or a spouse to kind of, you know, cry on their shoulder about how I was feeling. I had to really suck it up. Not because they told me to, but at this point, I'm used to figuring it out on my own. Okay, Tiffany, you got to think, figure it out. And the best way for me to figure it out was to kind of hold it all in. And I cried when I needed to cry. And after that, you know, you need to be strong, go out here and execute. It's time to get back to work. Soldiers got to do this. They got PT tests. They need to go to the range or, you know, they got leave coming up or whatever it was. It was back to business for me. But on the inside, I was going crazy because I'm like, I can't stay in. Like this happened outside of a combat zone. These people had families and it was so sudden. and I could not wrap my mind around it particularly because I saw the aftermath of it and that image stayed in my head. Like the image is still in my head. And so you couple all of that with feeling like you're not obligated to grieve. Well, you didn't know them. You just worked with them. They weren't your family members. It's not like that was your spouse that lost their life. And then, well, you're just a supply person. It's not like you were one fixing the aircraft. So this doesn't impact you. Those are all the things I kind of dealt with. 
on top of, you know, saving face and getting back to work on my, on the inside, I was like, you need to get back to work and get your head back in the game because this didn't affect you. It doesn't impact you. Yeah, you work with them, but this has nothing to do with you. And I carried that around for years. Like I still have the newspaper articles and everything from the crash to memorial services. I still have those things. And on top of that, it's almost like grief guilt. I felt guilty for grieving. And I didn't blame the army for that or anything. I just felt like, you know, who can prepare for a sudden loss of, you know, the people that you serve alongside? In combat, you kind of have, like you say, you kind of have in the back of your mind, you know, something's going to happen to my probably not going to come back. You just don't know who. But in a situation like that, all we're thinking about is pizza and Rome and wine and traveling. And oh, and throw a helicopter crash in there too that claims the lives of about five people. It's hard. And so for years, I dealt with just blaming, not blaming myself, but feeling guilty for being sad, feeling guilty for grieving or feeling guilty for, you know, just being around even. Like my presence kind of like, I would think that they were irritated because what does she know? She's not, she's not one of us. You know, she's not, she didn't fix these things or anything like that. She doesn't fly them. And I had all these thoughts running in my mind, but nobody ever told me this. That's just what I came up with in my mind. And it just kind of, it hindered me. It hindered me. And so when I finally, it was time for me to leave that assignment, I was scared yet again because I was always thinking that I was going to get in a crash. I was going to get in an accident. Like, it's my turn now. And I think all of that came from not processing the grief that I had, the guilt that I had, the isolation that I was dealing with before, during, and after that. And so when it was finally time for me to make moves on my own, here I am leaving. It's another chapter of life. I was so petrified that something's going to happen to me all because of piling on all these negative thoughts over the years well, over that, that the course of time. And so I, I would tell anybody who is considering going into the military or is currently in and they worry about the possibility of going to war or losing their losing their peers suddenly that don't neglect the resources you have to heal through those situations. Because like I said, the army trains us how to fight. They don't really train you for after the fighting. And that's why so many people come back home broken or they don't come back home completely. Even if they're intact physically, emotionally, we're in shreds. A lot of us are. And that duty assignment is, you know, that happened. But I met my husband over there. I met him. We dated and we got came back stateside and we got married. And so we have a different relationship probably for most people who are military or non-military. Like every night we sleep with earplugs in because the slightest noise wakes us up. And, you know, he's seen me processing going through this, like I said, guilt grief after all these years because it took, I didn't start going to therapy until about two years ago. And this accident happened in like 2007, 2008. So what, two years ago, 2016, 2017, it took me all that time to say, I think I need to talk to someone. So imagine eight years of feeling guilty for grieving. I never really grieved. You know, I kind of buried my grief and tried to get it out of my mind when it was actually damaging me all those years. I think that's normal. I went, I deployed in 2010 and I went and got help for processing my deployment in 2016, 2017. And it's like, I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's all right. But like you said, like they train you to go to war, but the emotional part, they just are like, you checked all the boxes. You're fine. And 
that's not how it is. And so I think if someone who's listening to this has deployed and maybe they deployed five, ten, it doesn't matter how long. If you feel like you're struggling, there's no wrong time to go and get help because it takes and I'm an introvert so it takes me a long time to process and that's part of why it took me I feel so long to go and get help but I think that's more common than people think I think we live with it for a long time and it just eats us up and then we finally have to get help I think I went to a therapist before I exited the military and I told her about it and she said you seem rather subdued when you talk about it like I didn't even go into detail or like uh show any emotion when I talked about it. And I told her, I said, well, technically it should not have impacted me. You know, all I did was order parts. And she said, you know, Tiffany, a lot of people have dealt with post-traumatic stress disorder after September 11th happened, and they were nowhere near the towers. And when she told me that, I remember like inside I was weeping because I felt like somebody had finally given me permission to feel bad about what happened. To actually not necessarily just grieve, but to empathize and to want to experience what happened, like whole, be whole about that moment in time. Like, yes, it happened. I'm sad. Broke my heart. And it doesn't have to end with, but I'm here now. It broke my heart and it crushed me. And that's it. And I'm sad about it. I would definitely encourage people to, that should be a part of their time in the military and it should be a a definitely a big part of your time outside of the military because I feel like while death is a natural part of life I don't think it's natural per se to see people dying and we don't process it the same even if we expect it I think if it's introduced in a violent way it the, the, the effects are longer lasting they linger a lot longer and like I said in that case we weren't in a war zone we're in a combat zone and I just I felt like this should have been a cakewalk and the things that I didn't have to deal with firsthand then I'm dealing with it now and it's too much. So definitely and the, the stigma attached to going to get help or wanting to talk to someone about it. Even if you didn't deploy, you have people who've dealt with sexual trauma in the military. You've had people who honestly have dealt with verbal abuse and physical abuse in the military. And it's not a matter of being weak or uh, the weakest link or anything. You just have some people in the military from all walks of life, and some people are abusers. And you have folks who have had to work with those abusers, and now they're feeling worthless when they get out. They feel like they're going to be the weak link in their civilian job. And, you know, I would encourage people to, to reach out to professionals who can kind of, they're not there to necessarily heal you, but to help you get your thinking aligned to where you are in life and where you want to go in life. Especially with the use of, you know, people have different coping mechanisms these days. And substance abuse is a big coping mechanism. And whatever happened in your time in uniform, if you have an unhealthy coping mechanism now, you'll never take that uniform off. You'll never part with those appearances, those negative or traumatic experiences, because your coping mechanism is going to keep you, like, bound in those parts of your life. It's going to keep you bound versus being able to accept what happened and move on. So while I've had, like, uh, things where I've had to grow, like working with predominantly male environments or having to get a kick in the pants to really own learning my job, those things also taught me how to really handle the getting back to work phase because we still want to be able to work and still want to be able to function. And those same talks that I had with that, that lieutenant was kind of like the same talks I had with myself. That I was sad, but I still wanted to be able to function because there might be somebody at work today that cannot function. And I want to help them be able to just 
function. And um, so I learned how to really talk to people about, you know, getting motivated and encouraged to, you know, pull themselves back up and get to work. But on my own time, it was very hard to take my own advice. It was very hard. So I did reach out and got help for that. Thank you so much for sharing that experience because I think that, I think people will heal from that and maybe even take the first step to get help. So thank you so much. I want to end the interview with one last question. You gave a little bit of advice to people who are considering joining the military, but do you have any other advice for women who are considering joining the military? For women, yes. Um, A lot of questions. Not to be, you know, as if you don't know what you're doing or what's going on around you. You want to have a toolbox full of knowledge, full of information. So always be asking questions. Always be inquisitive. And try to uh, avoid the negative thoughts that you can't make it. You're not fast enough. That you're not sharp enough. That you're not smart enough. None of that stuff exists. None of that stuff is real. And you just will really have to dig deep down and figure out what you need to do, specifically you need to do to pull your big girl panties up <laughs> and get in the fight. And I, like I said, I worked with predominantly males most of my career. And you can reach out to like my old first sergeant, because he's a command sergeant major now about to retire. But uh, he was not easy on me, but he was probably one of my favorite leaders my entire time in the Army. And uh, it's because they didn't see male or female. They saw soldiers. And I needed that. I didn't need people to think that because I'm there, it's not going to be as good of a job being done because we got this female over here. I was never treated like that because I didn't want to be treated that way. But I will also say, not just necessarily to females, anybody joining, considering joining a while they're in, to take advantage of the education benefits that they have because they are there for the taking. And if you don't use it, you it's, it's just sitting there and going back to why I joined trying to find myself I didn't want to get a bunch of student loan debt I ended up leaving the military after 10 and a half years with a master's degree on top of the deployments and all this other stuff I made good use of my time being single I did get a master's degree before I got out and I had so many education benefits that were, and I used active duty tuition assistance so once I got out I still had my GI bill so this past December I completed a second master's degree and people say well why are you doing yeah because it's there the education benefits are set aside for me and I'm a glutton for punishment so and I like school I think the mission was accomplished I managed to get the degrees I wanted to get without all of the student loan debt so use your education benefits Talk to education counselors when you're not deployed, not in the field. Have your nose in the book. Get classes under your belt. And for those females that are considering joining, dig your heels in and ask questions. Just put your hands to the plow and get to work. And don't worry about any of the other stuff, the negative thoughts. If you're not the fastest runner, then find the fastest runner and chase them. And I'm not just talking about in PT. I'm talking about mentally, emotionally, with your work ethic. Find the one that is the epitome of where you want to be and chase them. That's such great <laughs> advice. And I, I'm so excited. I mean, I love, I love what I do and your story. I think it's inspiring and I think people can learn from it. And hopefully it'll inspire other young women to join the military. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Amanda. I appreciate it. 
Do you want more stories of military women veterans? I just launched a book sharing 28 stories of military women. It includes stories ranging from women in the process of joining the military to women who have served and retired. Stories from the Army, Air Force, Marines, and Navy. But don't take my word for it. Hear what Natalie said about the book. This is a fabulous collection of inspirational stories of endurance, struggles, and women forging their own futures. The diversity of their background and experience is fascinating, but the broad range of military careers is astounding and sets to heart how integral women are in the military. This is a must-read for anyone considering a career with the armed forces or struggling to figure out their future career. The challenge and adjustments these women have made to create the life best suited for them is the type of motivational encouragement that can help others be confident in reaching their dreams. Check it out on my website, airmentomom.com or on Amazon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmentomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military. 